I'm kind of wondering, I have a question bubbling up. And it's something like, oh, have the conditions changed? How does it feel to be in the hall? Is it different than it was yesterday? Turn it up. Turn, turn me up, Scotty. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Right. Um, anyhow, I'm just I'm wondering a little how it is, how it is to have started to include speech as part of practice and continue to stay very present, concentrated, awake, mindful. How is it? <laughs> Anybody give me like a one word? <laughs> right. Not easy, okay. Weird? Okay. Does that speak for everybody or? Feels intimate. Anicca. Right, so the change is very clear, yeah. It's such an interesting time of retreat, this part. Such a valuable, important time. For so many different reasons. Apparently we get, we get to look at that idea of what we think it means that the retreat is ending. Or even the idea that we've been on retreat at all. And how did that happen? Sometimes I think of it like this. I think, oh, we all just pretended to be on retreat for a week. <laughs> and we created a certain kind of consensual reality that we bought into, and we bought into it enough, and then certain things happen in that reality. And this, this week, we all kind of dreamed up this idea of samadhi. Like, okay, we're going to do concentration practice. We, we thought it was a good idea, and you thought it was a good idea, and we came and, and did a certain style of practice, developed practicing one of the meditative arts that's called samadhi. Really, it's in the uh, uh, samatha, shamatha. Um, category of concentration, calm, collectedness, composure, <clears throat> unifying the mind, body, heart, unifying with the breathing for most of you. A few people are doing metta practice. <coughs> Excuse me. And we were, we were learning about it. We were studying it. We were studying it in an ex both a, a didactic way at times, hearing the teachings about it. We were studying it in an experiential way by putting the teachings into practice. And we were um, um, maturing that experiential study into realizing what we were studying. Realizing meaning discovering the uh, uh, the actuality of what we were talking about beyond the concept, beyond the idea, 
beyond the uh, um, um, conceptualization, the um, really moving into one we reason why the felt sense is so important is because it takes us beyond the ideas that we are talking about into the living reality of something we could call concentration or samadhi. And so we emphasized the experiential knowing. We looked at how to develop that or deepen that experiential knowing by being mindful over time and in depth of contact or immediacy of contact or intimacy of contact with the breath, with the direct experience. And then seeing how with that, with that um, continuity over time and that, and that moving closer, so consciousness and the object melding into one, dissolving the subject-object duality to some degree, and then seeing the both what's needed to do that, the 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 uh, aiming and sustaining, and then the resultant factors that come, of a kind of rapture, joy, and then a, a happiness, or and and of course as they go up, they're they're more refined. Those qualities are leading to um, equanimity, and starting to see how they arise in our experience. And then that they have the possibility of deepening or ripening. And then seeing very clearly how mindfulness functions to develop concentration. The moment to moment paying attention of the breath and being mindful of everything that's not the breath. Seeing that, knowing it, and then because of that discernment, being able to make the movement to get closer to the breath or to stick with it or to feel it more, to stay with it. And you need mindfulness for concentration and you need concentration for mindfulness. And they're inextricably linked. Mindfulness without concentration will kind of lose its power. You can't even develop concentration without some kind of mindfulness. Some kind of knowing of when you're on the object or off the object. And so even now as you're listening and you've begun to include a a more complexity in your practice, meaning talking, listening, relating, and all the resultant energies that come forward. See what it's like to center yourself in your body, in the living experience that's knowing my words, that's knowing your reaction to my words, that's knowing how your body feels or whatever thoughts you're having. Don't think because the concentration is not so is less strong or there's more complexity to your experience that you can't center yourself, that you can't be present, awake, mindful, concentrated. But if you expect the same 
degree or level of mindfulness and concentration as we had this morning or yesterday, that may not be so skillful, may not be so helpful. It may not take in what's sometimes called the clear comprehension of context in terms of practice, which is really taking into account the setting and the place and the conditions that are present. Um, But to think that you can't be mindful and centered, uh, I would challenge that idea. And and I want to challenge it, of course, because you're going to be in even more complex situations as you leave the retreat with family, with loved ones, with friends, with community, with work, with the whole catastrophe, as John Kabat-Zinn likes to say. He likes to be a little playful about the Duke apart in that way. So don't underestimate at all what's possible and don't overestimate what's possible. See what's possible so that your practice becomes a continual exploration of concentration and mindfulness. So last night Steve gave a rousing talk I thought, I thought a very inspiring talk actually on uh, a certain path of practice, really a path that is outlined and held in the, in the lineage of Mahasi Sayadaw, which is one of the key lineages that you enter here at Spirit Rock. Um, it's a lineage that all the senior teachers have practiced in and almost I would say every teacher on the Spirit Rock Teacher Council has practiced in, um, although it's not the only lineage that teachers on the Spirit Rock Teacher Council have practiced in. In addition, the other main lineage that we carry at Spirit Rock, um, um, even though there's even more than these two of Mahasi Sayadaw from Burma, is the other lineage is Ajahn Chah from, um, from Thailand. And I think it's important to know, uh, to hear a lineage and hear the possibility of how a practice unfolds and awakening reveals itself. I think it's also important to realize there are many different lineages. Just in the Theravadan tradition itself, that Ajahn Chah was a different lineage than Mahasi, that Buddha Dasa was different than Ajahn Chah, that Uba Kin, who was Burmese, taught a whole different kind of way of even, you know, meditating was not the way we teach in the Mahasi tradition how to pay attention. He had people, you know, doing a, a, some Anapanasati for concentration and then doing a body sweeping practice for, you know, 16 or 18 hours a day that led to enlightenment in his tradition. And those are just some of the Theravadan lineages. 
to some degree or another, all the paths, all the lineages use concentration and mindfulness as the key practices to reveal an understanding of the um, three characteristics and set the stage for the mind to open to the deathless or to nibbana. What's important, I believe, is to um, uh, see where you're drawn in practice because there are different teachers, teachings, um, lineages, ways of practicing that will speak to different people. And it's one of the, um, one of the great, uh, it's, it's got a plus and a, there's a plus and a minus to the fact that we have access to many lineages. On one hand, it's a great, it's, a, it's an incredible gift to live in a time and place where we're exposed to so many teachers and teachings. And they're all good. They all work. At least this is my view. I don't know if this is written anywhere in the Pali Canon or anything. But in, in my view and my experiences, they're all good and they all work. And this is even beyond Theravada and the Zen and Mahayana and Tibetan practices. All good. All work. And so it's, it's quite a, a blessing to have this kind of uh, uh, option, possibility. And of course... It can be limiting to have too many options at time, because if we just dabble a bit, well, we'll learn something, but it's we'll never we'll never get that vertical depth that comes from from really plugging in to a teacher, a teaching, a lineage, and really going deeply. And so we have the opportunity to explore and experiment, but when you really get called by a practice or lineage, it's very important to plug in and then go deep with whatever those traditions are. But I, I really appreciate the fact there are many possibilities. And I think it, it points to a, a multiplicity and a diversity of Dharma gates. In Zen, when you take the Bodhisattva vows, One of the vows is um, uh, Dharma gates are many. I vow to enter them. That we begin to see that that multiplicity of lineage, the diversity of lineage reflects something about reality, about the multiplicity of the forms that reality presents and just in terms of the forms of people or animal life or vegetable life, that of course the Dharma would reflect that truth, that there's not just one kind of tree, there's not just one kind of bird. There's this multiplicity. Um, And that there are different um, ways or different callings for different people based on your each unique being that's here. 
<clears throat> some of these teachings, some of these lineages are characterized by intensive meditation practice. And that's the key skillful means that take you all the way to enlightenment. Ajahn Chah seemed to have, he didn't, he wasn't so strict or meditation was part of practice, but for him, he, as a monastic, he taught the monastic life as practice. And so he was very much interested from the get-go, whether you let go or not. That, that was basically the key teaching. Have you learned to let go? Do you see that things are impermanent? That if you hold on, you'll suffer? And that it's not actually personal that things are arising due to conditions. And if you understand that, what's keeping you holding on? And he, uh, this is from, I didn't practice formally with Ajahn Chah, but Jack Cornfield said, you know, he would ask people, he would say, are you suffering? Let go. And if you haven't, if you haven't reached Nibbana, or first stage of enlightenment in six months, you must be missing the point. <laughs> you know, he had a whole, a whole different understanding of what that, what realization is or might be. And Jack said, when Jack came back from, uh, from Burma, and told him his, his experiences, and that Ajahn Chah, who was very Zen-like, let's, let's acknowledge that, he was very Zen-like, you know, Zen-like. Jack said, oh, this happened and that happened, and, you know, a lot of good things. And Ajahn Chah said, well, where are they now, all those experiences? <laughs> and he would point at Jack at something, something important that we're going to talk about, which is, even realization is not the end of the story. The other uh, piece I thought I would mention is about a German monk named Vimelo, who wrote an um, article that was given to me by Jack Cornfield called Awakening to the Truth. And he evidently, he, had, he went through the Mahasi system very deeply, realized certain kinds of realization, very powerful. And it was very important to him. And then six or eight years later, he had a whole different realization, riding in the back of a pickup truck going over a bump. <laughs> so what is that? And I think, I think that's important. Not a one is better than the other, but I think it points to this multiplicity of possibility and the unknown in terms of awakening. That we don't do awakening. You can't do that. You can sow the seeds, you can give your heart to the Dharma, you can make tremendous effort and that's all good. But you don't do awakening. You do whatever practice, whatever calls your heart towards freedom and then the Dharma will do you and the Dharma will do you in its own way in its time and place because if it's if it's us doing it we're in trouble then it's really a problem right I'm going to get enlightened 
we talked about this in one of one of the uh, groups today about this this um, uh, how to how to hold this as an inquiry what about enlightenment and um, uh, we were talking about the old blues song which is everybody wants to get to heaven but nobody wants to die. You know, it's like, oh, we all want to get enlightened, but we want to be there when it happens, right? <laughs> and it's not, it's, it's not for us to do. But, uh, but, but this bump in the, on, the, on the pickup truck, I find so fascinating. I love that story. And I love it because it allows us to see the mystery of awakening and the magic of awakening and the undoableness on a certain level of what awakening is. That um, there are ways, there are all these great conditions to set up that can lead to awakening. And then there's things that happen that are totally, some people awaken who never even practice. What, is, what does that mean? What is that about? Or what is it about that, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, they have a certain understanding awakening that's different than the Theravadan tradition. And, it's, and in Zen, they just, it's some of the traditions, they just don't even care. They say, oh, we practice for no reason. <laughs> and they already understand the Buddha nature of each being is the truth that's already sitting here. And so there's no reason to practice to get anywhere. So as one of these paths, I just want to give you a brief articulation of a path that uses samadhi very strongly. And yet you'll hear there's very much some similarities with the Mahasi path, overlaps. But when I was doing a little bit of this practice with Tanisaro Bhikkhu, here's, here's my understanding of what, what it meant that he so emphasizes concentration. And, and first of all, he, under, he doesn't think of them as different. He, you know, you do, you're mindful to develop concentration. And in the process of developing concentration, you're developing your mindfulness and developing your discernment. And you're sharpening the mind in that way as you're collecting and unifying the mind. And so you practice very diligently as we've been doing, and, but and intensively. You know, you're doing 24-7 practice with the breath. And the jhana factors ripen. And things become calm and pleasant and satisfying. And the calm and pleasant and satisfying in the sense of fullness that comes is um, uh, it usually brings forth faith to develop to practice stronger more, and so because there's some mastery of the practice, and and then it as it deepens and as it deepens into jhana, which is a stable sense of concentration, it's very satisfying and it's very pleasurable, and the importance of the pleasure is because it allows us to turn away very fully from worldly pleasure. 
because there's a more sublime pleasure that we're tasting and knowing in the meditative process as part of the path. And so that instead of, and so it's a, it's a, it's a proactive, uh, or uh, it's not quite the right word, but I'll say it. It's a kind of proactive support for renunciation, for letting go of worldly pleasure. Because you're, we're tasting, and you've all had a little taste of this, the sublime pleasure of the concentrated and unified mind. And so it's like, okay, let's go there. Let's go there. That's not a bad thing at this stage of the practice. And then you continue to refine, deepen, clarify your mindfulness so that you get skillful or more mastery in going into jhana, staying longer, and then as you're in jhana, starting to pay attention to what's uncomfortable within the jhanic experience or the deep absorption. And you start to, and you can see what's, what's a little gross or a little uncomfortable or a little unpleasant. And then there's more refined areas to pay attention to. And as you pay attention to the more refined area, it can begin to ripen into the dropping of one jhana and drop, dropping into the next jhana. And really dropping in is kind of dropping up or going to more refined level of concentration a more refined level of absorption. And that's even better than the first one was good, but the second one's better. The third one's even more refined and more interesting and more kind of satisfying. And the fourth one, characterized by equanimity, is even more completely onto itself. A sense of well-being is there. And personally, my experience was by fourth jhana, first jhana looks grody. If I, go, I said to Tan Jeff, I said, I don't want to go back to that grody first jhana again. I want to stay here. <laughs> and so this is the movement. And then you can move through even more refined jhanas, what are called formless jhanas, that are more refined of... They're not just characterized by equanimity, but by space and boundless consciousness and and nothingness and neither perception nor non-perception. They get more and more refined. But what happens is as you continue to pay attention in the jhana, or sometimes what they say is you slightly lift off without disturbing the concentration to, to pay attention to it, to be mindful of it, you see that it still has the three characteristics. That even this refined, delightful, exquisite, blissful, pleasurable, boundless state is dukkha. <laughs> it's still characterized. You still you have to do something to keep it going. And you actually have to work really hard to keep it going. And, and it's impermanent. It still fluctuates and changes. You can keep it going for a long time, hours sometimes, you know, a long time. And then, and then it goes, conditions change. It's still conditioned. It's not, and you, you can't do it. The self that thinks it's going to do something is actually, does, doesn't work. 
And so the three characteristics are still extremely important here because they set the stage at this point where the mind, and, and the way I think of it is at that point you're up Schitt's Creek. And I mean that in this way. You've given up, you see worldly pleasure isn't nearly as good as this stuff. And this stuff is no good either. <laughs> On a certain level. In other words, it's still dukkha. And so the only option is to turn towards the deathless. And the idea here in this style of practice is you turn towards the deathless with a very concentrated mind, with a deeply absorbed sense of presence. So that's one possibility, one possibility in the Buddha said, for one who is joyful, there is no need for an act of will. It is a natural law that the body will be serene for one who is joyful. For one who is of a serene body, there is no need for an act of will. It is a natural law that for one who is serene will feel happiness. For one who is happy, there is no need for an act of will. It is a natural law that for one who is happy, the mind will be concentrated. For one, this is describing the stages of right concentration. For one who is concentrated, there is not a need for an act of will. It is a natural law for one with a concentrated mind to know and see things as they really are. So, the paths, the myriad paths that lead to awakening are beautiful, are really beautiful. What a gift we have from the human lineage of these multiplicities of possibility of awakening, of forms that awakening and practice and the Dharma has taken different forms in different places and different countries and different cultures influenced by the very men and women, the people of whatever gender they may be. Um, to, to let the Dharma come through them and continue to live. And by live, I mean reshape itself generation after generation after generation, whether it's in the Theravada or the Mahayana or the Vajrayana traditions. And even now, it's happening here, that the Dharma is reshaping itself through us in ways we don't even know how it's going to look in a hundred years. But as it meets the West and America, which of course has all kinds of pluses and minuses, it's still, I, I really trust the Dharma. The Dharma has, has uh, not failed in all these 2,600 years, no matter where it's gone. And it will continue to unfold and manifest in even more multiplicity and more diversity. Now, all these paths lead to realization or freedom or the sure heart's release, whatever the metaphor may be, the unconditioned, the deathless. But it's not actually the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. I was talking with Robert and he was saying his teacher, Pa'ak Sayadaw, who is one of the revered Burmese masters, also another style of practice. 
beautiful style that many people are taken with these days and inspired by and practicing with. That he said, um, Pak, who's, how old is he, Robert? 76 or 77. 76 or 77. He's, he's going to, Robert said, well, he's going to stop teaching and practice now. <laughs> and he's been practicing how long? He's been a monk since he was eight or nine. Monk since he was eight or nine. So he's got a little practice under his belt already. <laughs> but he wants to stop teaching so he can practice. It's his time. And I said to Robert, I said, well, is he done? You know, is, is he done? Come on, he's been practicing for 68 years. Did he get there? Is he done? And I realized it doesn't, that's not the right question. It's not actually the right question. He may be done in some way or he may not be done. Doesn't, doesn't actually matter in some way. What's interesting, I think, at least for me, is that he's still practicing. And I think that that is beautiful. And when I look at the Buddha, he continued to practice even after he was totally and completely enlightened. He didn't just stop practicing. And for our benefit, he didn't just stop practicing. And so I think there's a way, I believe there's a way to begin to think about practice that in some ways it doesn't matter if Pak Saidao is done or if, or if we're done, because we're not done even if we're done. That there's more practice, that, that, that it's a way of life practice. And it's a way of life in this sense to, um, uh, well, here, here's how Ajahn Chah put it. He said, we study the Dharma to learn the Dharma. We learn the Dharma to practice the Dharma. We practice the Dharma to realize the Dharma. And we realize the Dharma to live the Dharma. And so what's happening at this point is the retreat is beginning to dissolve as a structure we made up. But your practice is not dissolving your living of your practice is not dissolving. In fact, you are going to have a lot more opportunity to live your practice now in this more complex, um, more highly, uh, um, yeah, complicated form. And because if we think that our practice is retreat, then don't leave. You better stay here now. If we think we have to leave our practice here, then why would we want to go home? Because practice is the Dharma. It, it's, our life is the Dharma. The Dharma is our life ultimately. That ultimately there's an understanding or a view that, that transcends the, um, the artificial structures of retreat or not retreat. Retreat is great. Retreat is extremely important. Our daily lives are extremely important. Each moment is an opportunity to practice. And we can say that with lip service or we could say that with a fierce dedication to awakening in each moment. That each, each, uh, each structure of our life, whether it be family or work or the civic arena 
or, or politics or wherever you find yourself becomes a vehicle or a manifestation of practice. I, I would hope that we all saw that one of the things I would hope we all saw on the retreat was, and Steve articulated this really well last night, we think that when we feel good, that's when practice is good. We think when we feel bad, that's when practice is bad. From the view of the Dharma, we understand those are the fluctuations of practice and practice is the totality of, as a process that is moving us forward into realization. And it includes both the good and well-being and bliss and the pleasure and the samadhi and the oneness and the unity. And it includes the fear and the, you know, the anger and the boredom and the resistance and the contraction and the, the wanting to throw up, take the mat up. That all of that is practice. And so when we start to have that kind of view of, of our retreat, it, that's a much, uh, that's such a skillful way to engage the retreat. That allows a certain level of dukkha, the second dart, the second arrow, to relax. Because we understand that part of the process of purification, yeah, it's scary. We'll be really scared. The whole sense of self feels like it's getting challenged, and it is getting challenged, and it's supposed to get challenged, and it will put up a fight. And it will act like I should, I should leave now. I'm insulted you. Nobody's seeing what a great practitioner I am. And God, you know. And if we can take this framework, this template, remember contemplum, as if in a temple or a template, this template that holds both but all the ups and downs of practice as practice. And then we can see, oh, that template applies to our whole life. That we think, oh, our life's going good when it's going good. We don't think, oh, I'm having a hard time, this is a good thing. <laughs> but maybe, maybe that's actually closer to the truth that it's showing us something, it's teaching us if we're present, if we're mindful, if we can give ourselves fully to the experience in a wholehearted, a unified way, it may be able to reveal more and more of the Dharma. First of all, by re revealing our delusion, which we want to see. You know, in Zen they have a practice, they call it confessing your delusion. And I'm, I'm married to a, a somebody who practiced many years in Zen as a Zen monastic. And, and one of the first things she did when we got together was she taught me this practice called Confessing Your Delusion. She <laughs> <laughs> was very helpful. <laughs> and, and the idea is you confess or acknowledge or are mindful and aware and awake to your delusion. And we acknowledge it. And it said, let me think if I can remember, and then it said, sentient beings, sentient beings are deluded about enlightenment. Buddhas are enlightened about delusion. 
sentient beings are deluded about enlightenment. Buddhas are enlightened about delusion. In other words, the Buddha was willing to see all the delusion and to acknowledge it. Not as something bad, wrong, horrible, we should judge ourselves, oh, I'm such a bad meditator. No, seeing that that is part of the path to freedom, to being free of our delusion, not being identified and seeing it for what it is. It's delusion. (laughs) Excuse me, (laughs) I like that. So, so I hope you get that framework and that understanding because that's so skillful when we understand that, when we really understand that the difficulties are not necessarily bad. They're difficulties. And I don't, li- I don't like to Pollyanna it at all, but, but it, would do, it would be a disservice to think, oh, we get enlightened just by having a good time. That is not how it happens. Just, just if it was, I believe me, I would do it. I, I'm down with having a good time. So, as you leave, your view is very important. Not to hold on to the retreat or even the concentration that you've gotten on this retreat. I mean, you can try. Go ahead, you know. But you might suffer more if you try to do that. I would, you know. I've done it. I've tried. Um, But that doesn't mean you can't be centered, present, composed, awake, mindful, aware, clear in the various circumstances of your life. And you, all of you have some concept, have have and had, have had concentration. One of the things you can do as you continue the inquiry, the exploration of concentration, is to recognize it in your life. Recognize when you're concentrated and when you're not concentrated, just as you've been doing here. So where are the circumstances where you're concentrated and what supports it? When are you collected? When are you present? When are you composed? Suzuki Roshi talks about it in daily life. He says, he says the key is limiting your activity. And, and really what that means, the short version is, don't multitask as best you can. You know, it really, it's that, just that one practice will change your, our lives. If we don't multitask, really don't multitask. And I can't, I can't say that I do that all the time. Sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't. I have a friend who's actually really good at not multitasking. Um, if, if he's with his daughter and the phone rings, he doesn't answer the phone. You know, I mean, just something else. If you're with somebody, you're actually with them. You don't answer the phone. You don't check your email. You don't text somebody while you're talking to Sally, you know? I mean, it's, we do this so much and it's really, you know, it's a little bit, uh, I just don't know what is, how it's exactly going to work for the next generation, but it, it's harder. It's harder because there's so much opportunity to multitask instead of simply being, limiting our activity to what's actually to one thing. 
here, Suzuki Roshi says it like this. He says, the way to practice is to limit your activity or to be concentrated on what you're doing in this moment. I mean, anybody, this is not esoteric, right? This is, this is very simple. He said, instead of having some uh, particular goal or, oh no, let me, let me tell you, you don't need that. When, you, when your mind is wandering about elsewhere, you have no chance to express yourself. But if you limit your activity to what you can do just now, in this moment, then you can express fully your true nature, which is the universal Buddha nature. That when we're composed in this way, present, awake, we can express the qualities that include patience and compassion and discernment and a sensitivity that, that allows a mindfulness, that allows for appropriate response. That the, the, not just our habitual reactivity, but that the depth of who and what we are, of what's here, can respond to reality. He says, when we practice, we limit our activity to the smallest extent, just keeping the right posture and the breath and being concentrated on sitting is how we express the universal nature. Then we become Buddha, we express Buddha nature. We just concentrate on the activity which we do in each moment. When you bow, you bow. And, it's, it's, and really what he's describing in Zen, they use the forms as mindfulness practice. So one time, I was in the Zendo in Tassajara, and I saw it was Suzuki Roshi's son came in, and I didn't know who he was. And he came in, and he bowed to the altar. And it was like, it was really one of those, oh my God, I've never seen anybody bow before. Because he was so there in his bow. And later they told me, he never sits in meditation. His practice is bowing. That's his whole practice. So this possibility, he said, so Suzuki Roshi says, he says, when you bow, you should just bow. When you sit, just sit. When you eat, just eat. If you do this, the universal nature is there. In Japanese, we call it one act samadhi. One act samadhi. And so this is a beautiful way to practice in our one-act samadhi, non-multitasking. And of course, I have to add in one little piece from Sun Sanim, the Korean Zen master, and whole nother path, right? And Sun Sanim was—he was a character. He was—he he had some oomph to him, Sun Sanim. I only met him once, but he was, he was wild. You could tell. He had his little stick and he hit it on the ground. He was like, you know, and he was, you know, he said, uh, he would grab a glass. He would say, what is this? Do you say it's a glass of water? I'll hit you. <laughs> if you say it's not a glass of water, I'll hit you. And then he would give you the Zen teaching, right? He would just drink the water. He didn't, he didn't really hit people, that I saw. <laughs> but Sun Sanim, there was a story, his whole thing was, you know, you just, 
if if it's red, just red, blue, just blue. You know, if you eat, just eat. If you walk, just walk. And one time his students came in and uh, he was eating and reading the paper at the same time. And the students said, well, you know, Roshi, what are you doing? You told us, you know. He said, when you eat and read, just eat and read. <laughs> so, so it's not... <laughs> You know, and that's a, the beauty of the Dharma. <laughs> you know, it's people. <laughs> so you can begin to practice in this way. You can recognize concentration in your life. Where are you concentrated? You know, sometimes therapists will talk about how it worked, that they're just there with the person, that's it. Or parents with a, a new child, just there. Or people taking care of somebody who's dying. Like some of us, many people here have worked with Zen Hospice. And you know what it's like when you're with somebody who's dying at that last stage. You're just there. That is all that's happening. And you're not even following your breath. You're following their breath. And you're there. Or if you're a caregiver to somebody who's sick, that just that. Or gardening. Some people, you know, you can see it in what you love. It's one of the reasons why some cultivation of samadhi is helpful because it helps us to love practice in the beginning. To really get, oh yeah, this is good, this is good. And then as it deepens, the understanding is what we love and the realization and the letting go. But the love has to be there. So when we love gardening, we can be really concentrated. Or some people love to study, and they're really concentrated. And so you can recognize it and see if you can extrapolate some of the qualities into your sitting and into your other actions, everyday actions. You know, athletics, one of the reasons people love athletics is because they get concentrated. You know, at a certain stage in the Alcatraz swim, that's all there is, is stroke, 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 stroke. That's all that's happening. In nature. <clears throat> Joko Beck, she talks about it beautifully as a musician. She was a piano major at Oberlin and she wanted to study with a really, the best teacher there, the teacher. And she went in for her lesson. She said, I found that he taught with two pianos. He didn't even say hello. He just sat down at his piano and played five notes. And then he said, you do it. And I was supposed to play it just the way he played it. And I played it and he said, no. He played it again and I played it again. And again, he said, no. Well, we had an hour of that. And each time he said, no. In the next three months, I played about three measures of music, perhaps a half a minute. Now, I had thought I was pretty good. I'd been a soloist with little symphony orchestras. And yet, we did this for three months, and I cried most of those three months. He had all the marks of a real teacher, the tremendous drive and determination to make the students see. And that's why he was so good. 
And at the end of three months, one day he said, good. What had happened? Finally, I had learned to listen. And as he said it, as he said it, if you can hear it, you can play it. So there's something important here for us about concentration and concentration in our activities. That there is a depth of concentration that is also available to us. And that we should be very, I think it's helpful to be very careful for any self-limiting ideas about what's possible in terms of concentrating in our daily life and in, in our activities, but also in the Dharma itself. That we often believe we can't do it or we won't be able to do it or we can't get through it. Or How many people had a rolling up the mat feeling at some point during their retreat? Be honest, how many? Okay, good, great. And you did it. And there's more to do because our life is practice. That whatever the realization, there's also actualization. So, in the, the way I'm thinking, it's like you go to the mountaintop. That's usually the, the symbol of realization. Coming back down the mountaintop into our life is the actualization of what we realize here. The openness, the, the good-heartedness, the love of the Dharma, the clarity of seeing the unity of things, the seeing the beauty of things, of seeing the dukkha and the nietzsche and the nata, and the, the impermanence and the, the change and the selflessness, all of that, all of the goodness of that. And I mean goodness, not just, it might not just feel happy or high, but I mean the, the true goodness, the true blessing of all of that we get to take back into our life and then part of our practice is to see how do we let that live? What allows that not only to live, but to, as Suzuki Roshi would say, express itself over and over again in, in an ever-maturing way. <clears throat> Jack Cornfield and Christina Feldman wrote a little quote here. They said, It is not enough to be a possessor of wisdom. To believe ourselves to be custodians of truth is to become its opposite, is a direct path to becoming stale, self-righteous, or rigid. Ideas and memories do not hold liberating or healing power. There is no such state as enlightened retirement where we can live on the bounty of past attainments. Wisdom is alive only as long as it is lived. Wisdom is alive only as long as it is lived. Understanding is liberating only as long as it is applied. A bulging portfolio of spiritual experiences matters little if we do not have the power to sustain us through the inevitable moments of grief, loss and change. Knowledge and achievement matter little if we do not yet know how to touch the heart of another and be touched. So our wisdom, and it, wisdom is found very much in, in intensive practice, 
Don't stop there. Continue like the Buddha, who, you know, if, if you don't know the story, he, did, he wasn't clear what he was going to do after he was enlightened. He was walking back and forth, enjoying his enlightenment, and it wasn't clear. And then uh, it said a deva came down, a heavenly being came, and encouraged him to, to teach and to look and see the need for the teaching. And he, with his eye of wisdom, it said he scanned the world and saw beings suffering, and he responded appropriately. And so he spent the next, I don't know, 40 years walking the plains of, of India, Nepal, and those areas, expressing his realization. And it wasn't always easy, because he had to deal with people. <laughs> and you know how that is, <laughs> right? And so the encouragement I would like to offer you in terms of continuing your practice and the expressing of it is really in Sangha. And it's something that came to me later in my practice. My first love was intensive practice. And I just wanted to do intensive practice. And I did as much as I could given I'd become a father right as I started practicing. So I wasn't going to go off to Asia, but I did as many retreats as I could do, you know, within balance. And I don't know. I don't know what my daughter tells her therapist now, but <laughs> it seemed like it was in balance <laughs> to me. <laughs> but I wasn't gone too much, but but I wanted to be and was totally, you know, there with her, but also called deeply. But later, and it really it was only after I started teaching and my sangha taught me about sangha, and I'm talking about San Francisco Insight, which is a wonderful sangha who, originally it was a sitting group, right? And by sitting group, I mean people came, they sat, it was all in silence, I gave a talk, and they went home, period. And they said, well, could we talk during the breaks? And I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm like, no, this is a sitting group. And, and they, of course, finally slowly kind of educated me and helped me, and as we do with one another in the Dharma. And they, then there was talking in the break, and then there was like, well, we want more community. And I'm like, why would you want that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, um, and then... And then they really, they really, a little kicking and screaming, they really taught me. And, and it's been such a blessing, San Francisco Insight, and how it's grown and what's happened and the kind of um, character that it's taken on. Because like each lineage has a certain character, San Francisco Insight has its own character. It's San Francisco. And it seems to have very much a character of... Uh, of uh, practice and service. And we've been very involved with uh, a sister sangha in South Africa, our good friends Kitty Sarah and Tanisara, and involved in a lot of service projects in the Bay Area, and, and a lot of um, just all kinds of things have happened uh, a little bit in spite of me. And it's been great, but it's really taught me something. And I so value sangha now. 
and uh, so appreciate it. And I would encourage you as part of your practice and supporting your practice as you leave to be involved with Sangha. And like I say, it's not that it's easy, it's people, right? And But that's what's good about it. Just like, oh no, the the, the the trajectory of practice is both up and down. Well, if you're dealing with people, you're going to get the down parts. You know, you're going to get people irritate you or you bump them or you step on their toe or whatever it is. You know, it's going to happen. But it's a place of practice. The unified, the unification is in our shared value and commitment to awakening together. Even given our differences, even given our difficulties, even, diff- even given our delusion, which we all share and continue to keep acknowledging. So I'll end with a quote from Ashvagosha, who said, the Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness or resign from the world unless they feel called upon to do so, which some of you may be called upon to lead a monastic life. And that's a beautiful calling. He said, but the Dharma of the Buddha asks each person, every person, to free themselves from the illusion of self, to open one's heart and to live a life of awakening. And then whatever people do, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if they live in the world, not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their hearts and minds. Let's sit together for a minute. May our practice allow us to live in the world, not a life of self, but a life of truth. Thank you for your kind attention. And also I want to say thank you for your practice and presence here this week. It's been wonderful to practice together. I, I Really, it's such a blessing that we have the time and the opportunity 
to give ourselves to the Dharma in this way. So thank you. And please accept my apologies. I have to leave tonight. I have another retreat opening tomorrow. And I need a little bit of time in between. <laughs> so it's a little bit, this is called unskillful scheduling. <laughs> but I did the best I could. So thank you all. And thank you to our team. It was great, great to, to, to be here together and to, to teach and practice. So, and may you all be well. And please come join us at San Francisco Insight if you wish, or any of the local sanghas. If you're, you'll hear more about that tomorrow. But it's, it's a great way to practice. Be well, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.